Hello, this is Arden co-creator Christopher Dole. I want to start this off by thanking all of you who have reached out to inquire what is going on with episode 212. I sincerely apologize to everyone and am here to offer an explanation and something else which will hopefully tide things over until the episode can be properly re-released. First, the explanation. For the time being, we have run afoul of the same thing which has prevented our beloved Inspiration Moonlighting from ever being officially released on DVD or streaming, music rights. When we first released the episode in 2020, there was a particular piece of music we licensed for a closing montage. We are currently in the process of re-upping the rights to that piece, and expect it should be back sooner rather than later. But even though we started the process fairly early, for now the gears of legalese grind slow, and this process has taken longer than we anticipated. So rather than re-release the episode in a form without that music, I am here to talk you through what happens in episode 212 with some clips to highlight the extraordinary performances of our cast. So, episode 212, A Piece of Work. It begins with a clip from the end of the show within a show, A Town Called Elsinore, in which Bea Casely confirms that three people died in the Hamill Hills Ranch fire, but one of the survivors was Dana Hamill. Dana, however, is comatose and unresponsive, and it is considered unlikely she will ever wake up. We then cut to the main action of the episode, where we follow Pamela's old professor Rowan Dabrowski, who is auditing the actions Wayface Radio undertook while in Elsinore to see if they can release a town called Elsinore. We first hear him meeting with Jake Wonder's fiance Jill, and we learn that one of the casualties of the fire was Jake. Jill is confused about why Arden was there at the scene and wonders if they kept insinuating themselves where they shouldn't have. I want to circle back to the Arden crew being at the ranch. Uh, Brenda Bentley charged in right after Jake, and I just assumed he asked her to follow him in. He wouldn't have asked her to follow, but she did, like all of them did, the Arden people inserted themselves where they weren't wanted, but every time you try to dig them out, they wedge themselves in deeper. Did they make all us rural folks look like bumfuck dummies? They didn't. They, uh, they really tried to get this place right, I think. I keep coming back to something B said to me. She wanted to know where the locals went so she could talk to them. <laughs> like, like she didn't realize... I was one of the locals. Because I had a Kate Spade purse and a $50 haircut. Like, where I'm from is, is, is a costume you could just put on or a skin you could shed. She was just a tourist. From there, we follow Rowan and his daughter Willow, who is assisting him with the audit. Willow is listening to Arden's arch-rival true crime podcast, Mr. Murder Man, which Rowan despises. Then we hear a clip of Rowan interviewing Brenda, who survived the fire but spent some time in the hospital. Brenda 
describes the action that happened when she and Jake Wonder entered the house. Dana had been knocked out and trapped under a fallen beam, but Brenda got them out. But she was injured in the process, spent some time in the hospital. Only Pamela knows what happened to her. Bia didn't even visit her in the hospital. Meanwhile, Jake got stuck in the house trying to get an unconscious Trudy untied while Clyde was bleeding to death on the floor. So those are our three confirmed dead of the Hamill Hills Ranch fire. Clyde, Trudy, and Jake. After this, Rowan goes to interview Councilman Nashville Osric of Elsinore. Nashville reveals that, as an old childhood friend of Clyde and Dan Hamill's, he was witness to ongoing child abuse by Clyde and Dan's mother, and that they were abandoned by their father. He also makes cruel insinuations about Dana and transphobic comments about Olivia. Overall, his point of view is that Arden enabled Dana Hamill. You see that guy opening the bidding over there? He runs a creepy little museum out in Los Angeles about killers. Tried to buy the whole lot beforehand. Why didn't the town sell? We're not selling souvenirs. Besides, we've had enough of people from Los Angeles coming in here like they own the place. These items, they're really fixable. The farm all looked pretty beat up. Shows what you know. Things out here have strong bones. You've already made up your mind, haven't you? Everyone listened to Dana, but she should have been kissing the ground Clyde and Trudy walked on every damn day. They loved her. Oh, come on. We are talking about two self-confessed murderers who... Oh, they didn't do it. They were just telling her what she wanted to hear. Dana was a mess. You know how often the cops hauled her in for drunk and disorderly? And every time Clyde and Trudy would head to the police station, make excuses? She should have gone to prison long ago. Would have done her good. Is that in the stupid podcast? From here, Rowan and Willow visit the ruined site of the ranch where everything has burned down. There's just nothing left. During this visit, Willow makes disparaging comments about how Nashville admitted that Clyde and Trudy switched Dana's med and asks Rowan how he would feel if someone did that to him. After a loaded pause, Rowan responds that Dana was on her meds when she set the fire. After an apology ad from Wayface Industries about Arden's involvement in the Hamill Hills fire, Rowan meets with Red Dutton, who is out duck hunting. Red claims that Andy tried to buy the ranch from Fortinbras the morning of the fire, and that she has audio which proves Dana's instability going back to Dan Hamill's funeral. Rowan, however, has some other evidence about Fortinbras' involvement, which he uses to fire back. Just a quick content warning, there is a gunshot in this clip at around 9 minutes and 45 seconds-ish. I cannot In discuss. a town called Elsinore, the Arden team alleges that going back years, Fortinbras used conservatorships to get land they wanted by declaring the rightful owner. Unfit. You're telling me Dana was fit? She was a murderer! 
If anything, Arden's involvement proved that some people simply cannot be trusted to... I mean, legally, not everyone is fit. And this didn't just happen. Clyde and Trudy shared with me audio from Dan's own funeral. Here is what I know, because your evasions are making me a bit dizzy. Miss Bentley saw Clyde Hamill at the CVS in Hatchet Falls. Noted the pharmacist was real chummy with him. Sure enough, he'd been paid to replace Dana's meds with a placebo. So Dana would be properly erratic. I got that on record already. Now Dana figured out the pills had been switched weeks beforehand. She was acting erratic to throw off suspicion, but she was, in actual fact, medicated and of sound mind at the time of the fire. The live stream proves that, and they looked into you. I'm only a representative. And they discovered over a dozen cases where rightful owners were removed and you brokered the deal. Now, widening the search, they found a, a history of similar practices going back decades. Systemic behavior documented. Either Fortinbras's land agents are the luckiest people in existence, or you... That wasn't even at anything, Miss Dutton. No, I hit a duck for sure. There are numerous reports on the Hamill Hills fire. Why is Arden the only team of reporters coming up with these accusations? It's funny how far they'll stoop to avoid taking the blame. This isn't publicized, and you can guess why, but Wayface is footing the bill for Dana's medical treatment. And her legal defense, if she ever wakes up. Why wouldn't they wash their hands of her? What are they protecting when they protect Dana Hamill? From here, Rowan chats with Pamela. Pamela's a little disturbed that he met with Red, but Rowan reassures her he's just running down every lead. They also discuss how neither of them has been able to make any contact with Olivia Breckenridge. After the call is done, Rowan receives the audio from Dan's funeral, and he and Willow listen to it. And he doesn't see it. He just goes right over that bike, both front and back wheels. And Dana is, well, what do you think a little girl is going to be like when her bike gets run over? She's a mess. So Dan parks and gets out, gets in real low, looks her right in the eye. Now, most parents would lie to make things better. Oh, we can fix it. We can get you a new one. But Dan, he's honest. There's no fixing it. We can't get you a new one right now. He treated her with respect. Dan was like that, I guess. He, he, um, he wouldn't give you a beautiful lie. He made you confront the truth. Hard as it could be sometimes. And I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss him. We all will, I know. Well, now Dana's going to sing one of Dan's favorite hymns. Dad hated hymns, so we're not going to do that. I've uh, been working at something special for the occasion, so 
So here's a Dana Hamill world premiere coming at you from the graveside. I'll see you when I see you, Dad. Why are you trying to be what you're not? You know you're wasting your only shot. This is your notice to adjust. Cause we're all gonna go back to dust. All of your worries, your struggles and Rexes and Fidos by now are long gone. Your grandpas and grannies have already passed on. Though it's only quietly discussed, you know they had to go. Oh! At this point, Rowan, overcome, is unable to listen further. Then we hear audio of Rowan's interview with Bia. Bia tries to play things off, including confirming that Lorena and Teresa Hollandaise are now dating, but admits that she thought that Arden had learned their lesson from the Julie Capson case. And now there's a body count. And she wasn't even able to face Brenda in the hospital. She feels responsible. We then cut to Rowan interviewing Lorena, at the local Elsinore Museum, where she's doing research for a Remembering Forgotten Memories season on Jerry Cooper, a silent film comedian who died on the Hindenburg. They talk about the difference between a tragedy and a spectacle, and about how Lorena had been doing her own research project the entire time she was in Elsinore, but Bia never even noticed she was doing it. You see those three feathers up there? Yeah, are those uh, are those peacock feathers? Yes, indeed. He plucked them from a bird in the Paramount lot to give to Bertie as a sign of his undying love. The assumption has always been that they were for Elizabeth Bertie Copenhagen, a chorus girl who died tragically shortly before Jerry himself lost his life aboard the Hindenburg. I've come to believe the assumption is wrong. So, what? What? He didn't die tragically because he died aboard the Hindenburg. One person dying is a story. The more people die, the more it ceases to be a story and becomes a spectacle. Which is to say, of course Jerry Cooper died tragically, but we don't remember his story, do we? Picture the Hindenburg in your mind, and you don't see the 36 people who died, you just see a giant blimp collapsing to the ground in flames. Technically, it was a zeppelin. You do not have to tell me the difference between a zeppelin and a blimp. I assume this artificially long pause is meant to get me to fill the dead space with something I'm reluctant to reveal. Because I won't. 
I will tell you that I believe the identity of Bertie to be Albert Graff, the composer of Two by Two. He and Jerry took several golfing weekends together between 1934 and 1936. It was rude of you not to ask. I just assumed you were sitting on a hot scoop. Once people are dead, they are no longer hot scoops. They become data recovery projects for those who care enough to go exploring. Speaking of which... <sighs> I guess I see why data recovery projects made you think of biting ice. Oh, I'm not going to ask you about Antarctica. That is for you to bear. I am going to ask you to sign the book for my girlfriend. She's a big fan. Of course. You know... I think we're talking about it without talking about it. What happened at <laughs> Hamill Hills? I'm talking about a sad story that became a giant spectacle. And you must know, a town called Elsinore is meant to reclaim Dana Hamill as a tragic figure, at least a little bit. I do not think Dana Hamill was a villain. I only talked to her one time at any length. I wanted to tell her how touching I found one of her songs. She fixed me with this smile. And asked me about Jerry Cooper. She had found out that was why I was here, and as he was a hometown hero, she knew plenty about him. Had even seen a couple of his movies. If Dana was a movie buff, I'm going to have to advance my theory that Dana was whatever anybody wanted. At this point, Teresa joins them. Well, you were right. They wouldn't let me buy the two-headed cat. I was going to say, not if you find the right person in regards to love. But Teresa has always had an impeccable sense of how and when to make an entrance. I offered them $50,000 for it, and they said it's priceless. I said it's a threadbare, well-worn dead cow with two heads, and they would be lucky to have the money. <laughs> Where are we going to put a two-headed calf? We are going to dismantle it. Humanity has a weakness for taking that which fills us with wonder or terror and placing it on a shelf so we can look at it. Well, you know what they say? Two heads are better than one. And when I'm through, no one will ever say that again. Teresa talks through what she considers to be Arden's mistakes and reveals to Rowan that Bia and Brenda slept together on Good Friday before the fire. Rowan is shocked to hear this. That night, Rowan calls Pamela to tell her that he recommends Arden not release a town called Elsinore. You remember that old dance dance revolution machine in the student union? What? Oh my god, come on, that was years ago. Yeah, but uh, still a hell of a thing. A campus legend. Ooh, Pamela Pink does a 12-hour marathon on that DDR machine. I was trying to prove a point. Of course, you would, uh, you would throw yourself into to something like that over and over over again. I mean, that's... How long were you actually on that machine? Oh my god, that wasn't the point. It wasn't about the time. It's about the process. That challenge you can't solve. And that you can just train yourself bit by bit to fix the problem. Any problem. God. Any problem. And did you think you could fix Dana Hamill in post? Way the story means anything is if we tell it honestly. 
And that means it's going to be ugly. We're going to get too close. We're going to, to sympathize with the wrong people because it's the only way to understand. I don't think what we made is what we needed to make. I freaking know it. Yeah. You can't always play the game over and over. Two seasons of second-guessing and bullshit. We found Julie Capstone. We figured out who killed Dan Hamill. We found out Fort Ross was... And, and that was good journalism. This is, uh... Messy. The mess? That is what makes it worth telling. We worth... To, hold, hold, hold on. What worth... Worth telling? You gave her exactly what she wanted all along, an audience. Congratulations, Pamela. You made Dana Hamill's final revenge. Rowan and Willow prepare to leave Elsinore behind and have a heart-to-heart where Rowan reveals why Pamela was his favorite student. You know how many students I've had? And how few retained a damn thing I said. I thought Pamela, you know, she was the only student to tell me to my face in the middle of class that I was wrong. That I didn't see. What, what was it? Oh, yeah. Objectivity is how the most powerful insisted that they are the most reasonable. And uh, yeah, she was right. Come on, you can't expect anyone to always be right. No, I suppose I cannot. But hey, you might have a shot at it, right? I made it to 17 without being wrong. Maybe I can keep it going. We wait till morning, we get free breakfast. This hotel makes amazing Fruit Loops. You realize they don't make the Fruit Loops. Dad, don't mansplain cereal to the resident expert. At this point, they receive an unexpected visitor, Olivia Breckenridge. Rowan and Olivia go to the local diner. Throughout the episode, Rowan has been constantly shuffling cards during his interviews, what he calls an old habit, what other people think is a tactic to get them to talk, or just a weird trick that he's picked up over the years. Various theories have been expounded. Olivia, however refuses to let him go without explanation after he keeps pushing her on the question of who was Dana Hamill. So he finally gives the real answer. And after he does, he gets an answer to a far more important question than who is Dana Hamill. Now please note, this next section will deal with difficult issues of death, transphobia, dysphoria, and other emotionally intense subject matter. Tell me about the cards. (laughs) You do not give up. I I admire it. (laughs) Okay, fine. Fuck it. I am, uh, I'm uh, I'm 26. My friend Clark, uh, I'd known him since we were nine, is uh, heading up this expedition to Antarctica. Stupid idea, stupid as shit, but uh, I'm young and dumb, and uh, it'll make a great story. So, uh, huh. anyhow, weekend, huge storm kicks up, 
you know, and the, 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 the absolute worst happens. People get separated. Uh, Clark and I uh, impossibly find a cave and we crawl inside. We are huddled together and um, we try to talk. <laughs> yeah, we both know. Uh, if one of us gets quiet, that's the, you know, but, uh, but I have a deck of cards, right? Lucky me. So I, uh, I take out the deck. <laughs> I think we're going to play a little gin rummy. And then I look down and then I realize, uh, you're wearing gloves. I'm wearing gloves. Yeah. <laughs> so it's easy. <laughs> we can't play cards. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking, but, uh, uh we, we just roar with laughter and, I don't know, we just start talking. Just about it, huh? Just about everything. And, uh... And then he slows. And then he, uh... And then I wrote a book. <laughs> and they made that book into a movie. And, uh, nobody ever lets me forget about it. I don't remember any cards in the movie. Yeah. I was gonna, I never told anybody about it. Uh, except for my wife. It was, uh, it was important to me to keep just a part of it to myself. You know, some part of him. Like if I, uh, if I didn't share that part, then maybe it wasn't exploitative. Why write a book at all? Yeah, well, I got home and um, everybody was saying Clark is this irresponsible wild child, you know, in over his head. And I, I knew he wasn't. And I thought, uh, you know, I could correct the record, but I overcorrected it. And, you know, he was my best friend. He was my best friend and he was an irresponsible Wild child in over his head. You know, it can be both. Two sunrise specials. You both made the right call. And if you want pie later, well, <laughs> let me know if you need anything else. I, uh, I dream about him. Sometimes, still. And then I, I wake up and I shuffle my cards. Hmm. I dream about her too. Almost every night since my father died. I'm in a castle long ago. Dana isn't herself, except she is. I'm happy, I think, or very, very sad, or both. And then I'm not in a castle. I'm underwater. Above me, stars gleam. Maybe they're flowers? If I can just touch them. Every move I make, I drag myself deeper and deeper. That morning, I woke up to find my father drowned, not me. The dream wasn't a warning. 
Not about that, at least. I needed to write about him. I mean, I wanted to correct the record, you know, about him, but uh, I wanted to correct the record about me, too. I wanted to know I'd uh, done enough. I had to let go of that grief, you know? I had to come out, somehow. Talk about it, Olivia. Into the tape recorder, or even, you know, into your soy riso. You have to talk about the people you love. You have to. Who is Olivia Breckenridge? May I? Sure. Um, I... I'm... No. Okay. My whole life, I felt more comfortable around women. They made sense to me in some way I couldn't define. Until I could define it. Until I could speak myself into being. Become a phoenix. But a phoenix sets everything on fire. One last thing Dana and I get to have in common. I wanted to be her. And to be loved by her. And to escape her. Turns out when you're a teenage girl, this is just a thing you do. You meet another girl and get sucked back into her. Cis girls learn to kick against that undertow. But I had no idea. I was caught in a whirlpool and I didn't know how to swim. I'd leave, I'd come back, I'd get sucked back in, I'd leave, I'd... over and over. Um, Dana was so... surprised when I came out to her. And I think I was a little shocked. I just assumed she could see me all along, but... I had to see myself first. Like, when you call me ma'am or Miss Breckenridge, that's you seeing me, right? And you've only known me as Olivia. You only see the person I present to you. But some little part of me, some tiny, tiny voice, always insists you're just being polite. I desperately want to believe the reflection you show me, but I always worry that... Dana wanted to be the sun. She wanted all of us to bounce her light back onto her. We all had other plans. She didn't get that. And if I should have taught her anything, it was to trust the light she already cast. But she didn't get it. I mean, how could she? I bought the ranch. You bought the ranch? I drove ranch? back to Elsinore the night of the fire. Ten hours. And even though they called me and told me about the fire, I had to hope she might be there. The whole way back, I couldn't stop beating myself up. What if I had been there? What if I just stayed put? Not with her, but near her, like on the land, by the bluff. I got to the ranch just as the sky began to turn purple. The fire trucks were still there. The cops, too. Ranch hands loading up cattle. One ambulance was pulling out in no hurry. 
The sun started to come up over all of it, and I should have turned right around and headed home, but I didn't. I stopped and looked, and I saw it all again. She was a monster. She wanted to destroy everything, even the land, but she had reset something without meaning to. And I wanted to put something new there, to not reduce it to a land of ashes. Something new. You must think I'm crazy. No. I don't think you're crazy. So who's Dana Hamill? The night my father died, she came over. Around midnight was when we figured out Clyde and Trudy were messing with her pills. I say, let's go to the police, but Dana gets that sparkle. We've got to prove it. If we can prove it, that fixes everything. Now it's 2 a.m. We're scheming, laughing. The years have melted off and all the resentment and grief are gone. It's just us, finally. It's 4 a.m. We've got our perfect, stupid, beautiful plan. I get into bed. She's there. I put my arms around her. She could finally see me. And that was enough. She was everything everybody wants to say she was. And worse. But... I would do anything to live that night over again. That's Olivia Breckenridge. I loved a girl. I had to leave. She fell apart. I bought her ranch. I'm gonna drown. I may as well face the sea. You gonna deal me in? After breakfast. From there, we check in on everyone we've heard this episode. Nashville Osric, who's meeting with Olivia's attorney, Helen Fairfield, to finalize the sale of the ranch. Willow, telling her mom that Rowan's going to be okay. Teresa proposing marriage to Lorena, and Lorena accepting. Jill praying for solace after Jake's death. The Fortinbras board forcing Red to resign and disappear. The guards and doctors at Dana's bedside, wondering if she'll ever wake up. T. Martin, sans Rosalind, having a drink to mourn what happened. Olivia and her boyfriend Brad, wondering if they did the right thing by buying the ranch. And then, finally, we hear Rowan give Pamela one more phone call. I have one question. What did you want a town called Elsinore to be? I wanted it to be honest. That's all. I hope we could do justice to Dana Hamill's story, not make her a hero, but not make her a villain. Just make her her. The person we all knew. Okay. <sighs> Look, you can't broadcast a town called Elsinore. As is. But you can make something better. Something that, that's not just the Dana Hamill story. It, it'll be about everybody who knew her, who who survived her, who mourned her. And I'd like to help. 
if you'll let me. And with that, the episode concludes. And I hope this serves as table setting until we can re-release the full episode the way it was meant to be heard. I want to thank you all for your patience as we get that finalized. And I particularly want to thank our remarkable cast. Ptolemy Slocum as Rowan Dabrowski. Sersha O'Sullivan as Olivia Breckenridge. Charlita Gaston as Pamela Payne. Julia Selden as Willow Dabrowski. Libby Woodbridge as Dana Hamill. Rebecca Metz as Trudy Hamill. Lindsay Syme as Jill. Grant Patrizio as Nashville Osric. Melinda Palomino as Red Dutton. Mia Drake as Lorena Christopher. Jennifer Liao as Teresa Hollandaise's high-stakes negotiator. Katie Wright as Helen Fairfield. Couple old friends from season one pop up. Robert Fleet as a diner customer. John Rail as a prison guard. Special appearances by Brigham Snow as Mr. Murderman and Misha Stanton as Mr. Mr. Murderman. And of course, Michelle Agresti as Bea Casely, Tracy Syed as Brenda Bentley, Shannon Estabrook as Rosalind Ursula, and Benjamin Watts as Andy Wayface. Back to Dust, the original Dana Hamill number in this episode, posed by Laura Stratford and performed by Libby Woodbridge. Thank you all, and good night. The gang are all here. At this point, there's no need to be nonplussed. You know we're gonna go back to dust. So though I know it's all on me to make things right, I'll take my time I'll be prepared I'm good to go No, I ain't scared The poor and the mighty The big and the small We wind up together to someone you can trust It's time to live it up and go for bust Cause we're all gonna go back to dust Yeah, we're all gonna go back to dust